it's a blessing to be pastor of this church for October will be 26 years. I've looked back through the history of the church and I'm proud of the heritage that the church has. And um, I think it's, it's, it's super cool that after 114 years, some of the original founders of the church still have family members that are a part of the church. And that's grown beyond that original base, which is good. That's, what it, that's how it ought to be. Um, but, but I think that those founding fathers of the Zion Hill Church would be um, thrilled to know that some in their family line have continued to serve the Lord here through the ministry of the Zion Hill Church. So this morning I want to take you to a passage of scripture on this 114th homecoming that I believe describes the church. And I don't think it's just described it um, through my season of ministry here. I think it's described it far beyond that and before that. And I don't mean to come across as thinking that we've just all got it, we've got it all figured out and there, are, there never have been, never will be any problems. Because anytime you gather people together, um, you're, there are going to be seasons, there are going to be times where you have to go through trials and tribulations and where um, people um, do get at odds with one another and you have to work through seasons of reconciliation. That's true in our own families, that's true in our own marriages, and it's going to be true of every church. Um, but I think John Hill Church has excelled. Um, in working through those seasons where times have been tough and um, have come out stronger for it on the other side of that. And, and, and not only does this passage, I think, describe the Zion Hill Church in my mind, but it, but it, also, it, it also, I believe, testifies as to why um, we keep growing. And, and I, you know, you've heard me mention this several times. Churches that are as old as Zion Hill typically um, have plateaued, and many of them are in a state of decline right now. And you don't have to take my word for that. You can go do the research. It's out there. Um, that's the reason you're seeing a whole lot of new church plants cropping up all over the place. It's not that, they won't, that we don't have enough churches. We have enough churches. Um, but some of the older churches that have been around for a long, long time um, have plateaued, and they've become like a closed unit, and they're not growing, and many of them are in a state of decline, and some of them are just a few funerals away. Honestly, I'm not trying to be harsh, but some of them are just a few funerals away from shutting the doors for good. And so planning new churches and church revitalization has, begun, has become a big topic in the last 10 years or so. Um, taking old established churches and literally shutting them down. And then bringing them back, rebranding them, doing a lot of remodeling, trying to bring them up, you know, and it's, it, and it's tough. I mean, it's, it's hard to do. So when you look at a church that's 114 years old, um, that's still experiencing growth, that's still moving forward, and, and we're not, we've never, not since I've been here, we've never had just exponential, rapid, explosive growth, um, but it's been consistent, it's been steady. And um, we've had a steady flow of kids being born and raised in the church and, and those kids being uh, bearing their own children and raising them. I think it's cool that I've had the opportunity to baptize, in some cases, four generations of the same family. That's awesome to me. And so this passage of Scripture not only, I think, describes us, but it also explains why we have continued to grow and prosper um, for 114 years and hopefully um, right on until the Lord Jesus comes. And it's Psalm chapter 133, if you have your Bibles. And, um, and you know, there's a lot of speculation about um, why Psalm 133 was written. And, and most of what I've read, kind of, um, the consensus seems to be um, that this could have been when David was coronated finally 
as the king of Israel. Not when he was anointed, but when he was finally officially coronated. The Bible says, uh, you, you know, Israel went through a long season of disunity. And um, I'm, the period of judges was awful for them. And they were literally fighting among themselves um, to the point that they needed some leadership. They needed somebody to come along and bring to them the unity that God intended for them to have so that they could represent him as they ought to represent him. Uh, Saul failed in that because Saul was uh, let his own, I believe his own ego, let, a, let an evil spirit enter his heart and jealousy um, enraged him. And, um, and, you know, even though Saul was Israel's first king, he did a miserable job of bringing the nation together. And, in fact, they, become, they became, or stayed, I should say, um, disunified under um, his leadership. But when David came along, the Bible made it a point of letting us know that all of Israel came out to support David as the king. They understood that he was God's man for them. And David became the king that all other kings were compared to. In spite of his failure at one point in his ministry, David did a lot of good things. He wrote a, a, a big portion of the songbook of Israel. And this may have been David's reflection upon the unity um, that, that was ushered in at the beginning of his kingdom and throughout his reign um, that continued through Solomon and then fell apart again um, after Solomon. Um, it also could just be a reference to David looking at the people of God under his reign when they came to Jerusalem. Remember under under. Under Saul, the Ark of the Covenant was lost to the Philistines. And, um, and under David, the Ark of the Covenant was brought back into Jerusalem and established uh, there a place of worship. Now Solomon built the temple, but David established the Ark back in Jerusalem so the people of God could come back together for worship. And it may have just been the occasion of David as the king witnessing the people of God rally themselves together around um, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so I'm just going to preach as I go this morning. Psalm chapter 133 is only three verses long. Um, several of the psalms are as short. There's only one that's um, shorter. But Psalm chapter 133, beginning in verse 1, says this, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. The pleasantry of Unity. David began that by saying, Behold, look and see, recognize and acknowledge how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. Now, I looked up the word unity. It means togetherness. It means oneness. It means cooperation. Some other words in the Bible that, um, that, that help us see, um, that help us understand unity is the whole idea of fellowship, koinonia, Having things in common, being in one mind and of one accord. Um, when you even when you look at the term community, it is common unity, and that's what the church has. A church is a community. We have a common unity, and that unity is found in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our unity revolves around who He is, His person. Our unity refers around what He did, the purifying work um, of His redemption and of His sanctification by the Holy Spirit. And not only that, not only what he's done for us, but what he's doing in us and what he's doing through us. That's what the church revolves around. That is the unity of the church as a whole, and it's the unity of the church as far as a local body or a congregation is concerned. Uh, just a couple of verses that speak to this, and I'm not going to go a whole lot outside in, in this morning, but these two verses, or passages of Scripture, I should say, um, just stood out to me 
uh, in this beauty or this pleasantry of unity. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. For both he that sanctifieth, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and they who are sanctified, that's the church, are all of one. For which cause he, that is Christ, is not shamed, ashamed to call them brethren. Christ is not ashamed to call the church his brothers, his sisters, um, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Now that's actually a, a quotation from um, the Old Testament. And, 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 and the only thing that the writer of Hebrews said differently was that uh, in the Old Testament it says, In the midst of the congregation. Um, which was a reference to all of Israel. But now um, the writer of Hebrews became very specific, and in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto Christ. Hebrews, we are one. That's what that passage says. We are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, um, says there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all, and that all is all of us. We have been brought together under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who He is, what He's done, and what He wants to do uh, in our lives and through our lives um, for His own glory and honor. We're one in Him. All of us are one in Christ. Now let me, just, let me, let me clarify a couple of things about unity. I gave you some words that describe it. Oneness, togetherness. Cooperation, fellowship, community, all of those words are, are words that describe unity. Let me tell you some things that unity is not. Unity, is, unity does not necessarily mean uniformity. Um, we can be different in a thousand different ways and still be united in who Christ is and what Christ has done in us and in what Christ has called us to be and to do in this world. We can, be, we can be different in a thousand ways. Unity does not mean um, that we are all uniform. It doesn't even mean we're completely uniform in our beliefs. Now, I, I think there are some things that we have to have in common in order to call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ, but that's a pretty short list when you get right down to it. And there are a lot of other things that we can have disagreement about and yet still be in unity with one another. There are some scriptures um, that we interpret a little bit differently, some practices maybe um, that we do things a little bit differently. But I'm here to tell you, I can call my brother Bill Mullis, who is still sick this morning, he's my brother in Christ. Um, they, they have some different views on some things um, than we have, but we're brothers in Christ. But you bring that down to the congregational sense, and for the most part, when we gather ourselves together at Zion Hill, we all speak the same thing. We believe the same thing, and we are at unity uh, in and among ourselves in most all of the areas of theology um, that we talk about. Um, but we can be brothers and sisters and different in a thousand different ways. Now, that's, that's true, of our, that's true of, our, uh, of our biological families. If it's true of our biological families, it can certainly be true of our spiritual families. Family members can look completely different, can have completely different tastes, can have completely different personalities, have completely different DNA. We can be different in a thousand ways. My, I am the outspoken one in my family. I'm, I'm the life of the party. I'm the socialite. My brother, if you get my brother to say ten words to you if he don't know you, you're lucky. Um, he's quiet. He's soft-spoken. My sister's the same way. I, got, I, I did all the talking in my family. I'm the mouth of the south. Um, all of my family is different. 
Um, I mean, I got you look at football season in my household. Um, the only ones that are on the same page are Cindy and Zach, and they're not talking a whole lot because FSU's not doing real well right now. Um, Zeb's a Bulldog fan, and, and I hate to tell you what Sarah even is, but uh, they came close to a win yesterday, but not quite. Um, roll Tide. Roll Tide. But hey, one, one Sunday we'll just get everybody to wear their favorite team jerseys and I'll show you how diverse we are, all right? Um, my brother, I, when he was born, he is, he is cotton top, man. He had the whitest hair. We called him cotton top. And my sister and I used to torment him, boy, you don't even, I don't even know where mom and daddy got you from, but you don't look nothing like us. And, but it's, he's changed over the years and now he and I look a lot alike, but. Um, there's, a, there's a whole lot of diversity within a family unit. Um, different tastes, different preferences, different likes, but we're one in family. And when you look at the church body as a whole, you know, I think it's an incredibly beautiful thing. And I, this has become a, a point that I harp on all the time. I believe that, the, that part of the beauty of the church is the diversity of the church. I'm thankful. Have you ever looked at this? Man, I mean, you can have a litter of puppies, and you got God. I, I noticed um, Rusty and Lindsay been selling some labs. If I ain't got rid of them all, there's your plug. They tie different colored scarfs around their neck so you can tell them apart. But you know, in the sea of humanity, we're all different. Now, you may occasionally find somebody that claims to be identical twins, but usually that difference will begin to pronounce itself at some point along the way. There's a huge amount of diversity. I, you get in the sea of people and look around and think, holy cow, how many different variations of humans are there? Um, our diversity is profound. And I think one of the most beautiful things about the church is that in the church, you can have people that are loud like me, and you can have people that are quiet and reserved. And, I, and I, 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 even in a worship service, I can be as loud and vocal and hands lifted up as I want to be, but that don't mean I'm worshiping any more sincerely or purely than somebody who's sitting there reverently with their eyes closed and their head bowed with tears rolling down their cheek. It's, it's, it's the difference in the way that we worship, but we're worshiping the same. The object of our affection is the same, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can have the loud, you can have, you can have the quiet, you can have those that are wound up. And those that are just kind of laid back and take it as it comes. You can have um, rich and poor. You can have black and white and Hispanic and any other race under the sun or ethnicity under the sun. You can have them all together, young and old, from all kind of different backgrounds and we're unified in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most beautiful things about this church to me is the diversity that's here. And the different gifts that are here. And the different preferences that are here. That, I mean, there's just a lot to rejoice in about how God has brought such a diverse group of people together. And we have found our common ground and we labor together um, for His glory. Let me tell you what else unity is. It is the absence of strife and conflict. And I want to tell you, I believe that's, one of the, that's, that's the, probably the biggest reason... That the scripture says that it is good and pleasant when brethren dwell together in unity. It is the absence of strife and conflict. It is when we are at peace with each other. It is when we are 
in harmony of spirit that brings us into a harmony of soul. Um, I, I thought about that word harmony this week as I was thinking about this subject. You know, you, you can get... My granddaddy Chester was primitive Baptist before he became free will Baptist. And they didn't sing, they didn't sing with any instruments. They just sang with their voices. Sister Francine grew up that way. And when my granddaddy would start singing during the communion service, he sounded like he was way off key. I wanted to say, granddaddy, you need a hush. You don't. I mean, he's older. He, he's my, this is my great-granddaddy. I, 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 you don't sound good. I mean, you may be making a joyful noise, but it don't sound good right now. And then when he would start singing Amazing Grace, and, and, and great-grandma would chime in, and then my mom and her three sisters would begin to sing their parts, I thought, holy cow, they make great-granddaddy sound good. And I tell you this, every time I sing with my mom and daddy, mama makes both of us sound better than we are. It's that harmony. It's that every person doing its own part, working with the other parts to make it a beautiful thing. You can put a whole bunch of instruments on the stage and, and, and when they play the different notes and the different parts, it blends together in a symphony of praise to God. It's the diversity that's brought together and the absence of peace and conflict in the midst of that that brings a, a, a beautiful sound. Um, and, and I believe it's the harmony of our spirit that we're one in Christ that brings us into a place of the harmony of our soul where we begin to crave and desire and want um, the same things for our church family. Now, isn't that a pleasant thing, to be absent of strife and conflict? Absolutely it is. I mean, we're living in a world right now that's full, of, that's full of conflict and that's full of strife. But doesn't it feel good to gather together on a Sunday morning uh, with a group of believers and there's not any conflict and there's not any strife? Um, that it, there's nothing in here that are making us feel at odds with each other. There's nothing in here that, are, that have us at each other's throat. Now, I said this Wednesday night and I'll say it again. There was a time in Zion Hill, one time that I can remember in my years here, 26 years, where we got in conflict with each other. And I won't even go back and rehearse what it was all about, but I, was, I primarily was the one that created that conflict. And I don't want to take responsibility for it for a long time, but I did. It was the way, it was, the, it was a lack of leadership on my part is what it was. And I had to take ownership of that before we could ever get back on the same page and begin to move forward again. But can I tell you, when we got together then, and in, in, in the few weeks that that went on, it was a miserable season. You could walk in the back door of the church and feel the tension um, that people had against each other. It was hard to worship. It was hard to preach. It was hard to pray. It was hard to do anything because there was strife and conflict in the middle of the body of Christ, and it hindered our ability uh, to worship Him and to serve Him together. And I was so glad when we were, I remember it. I remember that day. It was a strange day to be a visitor at Zion Hill Church, I'll say that. But I remember preaching that sermon and taking my responsibility for my part in it and asking other people in the congregation to stop stirring stuff up and to, let's get on the same page again and not let the devil destroy what God has started and I remember <laughs> I probably wouldn't do that again but I went and opened the back door of the church and said now if you're going to keep stirring conflict you can go out that door if you're going to quit stirring conflict you can come to this altar and the altar flooded filled up with people 
And we forgave one another that day. And we put the thing behind us that day. And we began to move forward again in unity. I'm telling you, it is good and pleasant when brethren can dwell together in a spirit of unity. If you've ever had conflict in your own family, you know how that feels. It'll rob you of your sleep. It'll rob you of your rest. I hate the presence of conflict within the family. I hate the presence of conflict within the church. When you have unity in the church, it is, it is a place where you can feel the fullness of joy. It is, it is where, um, where, where that unity is literally fueled by the love that the members have for each other. Can I tell you all something? I love every, every stinking one of you. I mean that in all sincerity. And sometimes you get on my nerves and sometimes I get on your nerves. But I'm serious when I tell you I love you. I'm glad that God brought us together. I'm glad that our paths have crossed. I'm glad that you are ministering alongside me and I'm ministering alongside you. I'm glad that God called us to serve the Lord together. And I hope when we get to heaven, there's a block in glory um, that's, that's, that's earmarked for the Zion Hill congregation. Because I want to live where you are. I want to be. You are my people. And I'm your people. And I want us to be together forever because I want the unity that we've experienced right here to extend into glory. Unity is a beautiful thing. It's a pleasant thing. It is a fountain that flows with abundant life. That second verse says that it is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Just stop right there. We talked about the, the pleasantry of unity. Let's talk about the preciousness of unity. Very similar, but, but the psalmist is painting a picture here. He's given two things that are symbolic of unity, two beautiful things that are symbols of of unity, like the precious ointment that flowed down Aaron's head upon his beard and upon his garment to the skirts of his garment, like a precious ointment. That's how Exodus chapter um, 30, verse number 25, calls it an oil of holy ointment, a compound after the art of the apothecary, which is one that mixed up perfume. Now, I, I, just doing a little bit of research, that oil was used to consecrate the temple and the people that served in the temple. It was made out of pure myrrh, sweet cinnamon, sweet calamus, cassia, and olive oil. It had a sweet perfume smell. Uh, the people of Israel were forbidden to make, it, to make anything like it. They, that oil had a specific designated one purpose only function and that was to anoint everything that made up the tabernacle in the temple all the all the different pieces of furnishings that made up the temple in the tabernacle and all the people that worked inside of the temple and tabernacle all of those things were designed to consecrate them to purify them to mark them as being holy and God forbade them he said don't in fact he went so far as to say if you make this oil for any other reason you'll be cut off from the congregation of Israel. It was made exclusively for that purpose. Um, 
I, I want you to understand the, 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 the beauty, the preciousness that he's trying to reflect in this. So let me, let me take you on a little bit of a short history lesson. Israel was in bondage to Egypt for 430 years. They went down into Egypt, 70 people in a family. In 430 years, they expanded to a number that probably was in the millions. I've heard estimates anywhere from one and a half to three million. 600,000 men is what came out of Egypt. 430 years of slavery, they escaped bondage, they escaped death. They were redeemed by the blood of a lamb, a Passover lamb. They went together in the dry bed of the Red Sea. In fact, the New Testament calls that baptism, that they went down into the Red Sea and were baptized unto Moses. That was their identification with Moses as their official leaders. They journeyed for two months through the wilderness to the mountain Sinai. Y'all remember what happened to Sinai? Moses went up on the mountain and met with God there for 40 days. And when he came down from the mountain, um, he had instructions for worship and instructions for living. He had instructions for the building of the tabernacle, for the sacrificial system that was about to be set up, and for all the people that worked within that tabernacle. And part of that instruction was the making of that precious ointment that was used to make everything in that tabernacle and the people there holy. So for the next 10 months, after he came down from Sinai, for the next, they, they went two miles into the, or two months into the wilderness to Sinai, for the next 10 months, they built the tabernacle. They built the furnishings of the tabernacle. They, they made the garment of the high priest, which included that breastplate um, that was made of gold that had 12 different stones, different kind of stones, uh, laid into that breastplate, all reflective of one of the different tribes of Israel. And then listen, on the first day of the second year, that they escaped Egypt. On the first day of the second year, everything was ready. Uh, all, of the, all of the objects of the temple had already been anointed. And now Aaron stood before the congregation of the children of Israel as the high priest, the first high priest they'd ever had. And Moses poured that anointing oil over his head. It ran down his head, across his beard, dripped across that breastplate, permeated that breastplate, and ran down uh, to the skirts of his garment. Twelve stones representing twelve tribes, all brought together by the anointing of that sacred sacred oil um, that sanctified them and set them apart as a people holy unto God. So now all of it, now the tabernacle, now the furnishings, now the garment, now the priest, and the people were consecrated and called holy unto the Lord. Now get this, 50 days after that, 50 days after that, they began to move forward. They began to march again, and they moved from that point forward uh, in unity bound for the promised land. Now let me tell you the significance of that in the New Testament. The tabernacle and everything about the tabernacle and all the furnishings of the tabernacle and the role of the high priest in the tabernacle, all of those things are a picture and symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of them are. Read the book of Hebrews and it'll, be, it'll tell you a bunch of the different things in the tabernacle and what it represented about Christ. Uh, the tabernacle was the shadow the substance of the, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It was all a reflection of Him and of His ministry. And the oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the one that is anointed by God to be the high priest uh, of the church. You know what Jesus did when He was crucified? He ascended back to the Father. 
um, for 40 days then he came back and met with his people. Uh, and, and, and he made intercession with them before the Father. He came back uh, with instructions for worship and for living. And then 50 days after um, the resurrection. Listen, I, think it's, I don't think it's a, a coincidence that 50 days after the tabernacle was anointed um, with the Holy Spirit, they began to move toward the promised land. And when you get to the, to the birth of the church, um, Jesus went up to meet with the Father. He came back with instructions for worship and living. And 50 days later, in an upper room where 12 disciples were gathered, they were anointed by the Holy Spirit of God, and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ was born, and it has taken the gospel of the kingdom around the world for over 2,000 years in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Peace that Christ has given to us. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ is doing in his people. Symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And can I tell you, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit that is the perfume of the church. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit that makes us a sweet-smelling savor unto God that binds us together in Christ. And when we worship and when we pray and when we sacrifice and when we serve or even when we suffer together, His presence covers us like that anointing oil. It permeates our lives. It permeates our activities. The psalmist said it is precious like that ointment that ran down Aaron's beard. It also says it's as the dew of Hermon. As I understand it, Hermon is the highest mountain peak in that region of the world. And that it is covered with snow year-round. The dew, when you look at Jerusalem, Jerusalem is dry and arid. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a pretty barren and desolate land. But the dew of Hermon... The mountains there, because of the snow, because of the, 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 the humidity um, that's created there. It's a lush mountain. Um, when, when, the, when the summertime comes and, the, and the, the snow cap never fully melts, but the mountainsides melt, that, that mountain becomes a major tributary of the Jordan River that flows uh, by Jerusalem. So the psalmist is writing uh, poetically, um, that this dew of, of Hermon waters, nurtures, um, creates vegetation. It brings it all the way down to those dry, desert, barren places of our soul. And so listen to me. I believe this is true, that the unity of the, the brethren, the unity of the church, invites the presence of the Holy Spirit to flow into dry and barren places of our soul. I'm telling you, I don't know if I'm getting this across to you, but when we gather together, You know, I can have a horrible week and you can have a horrible week. We can walk through a week full of dry, barren places. But when we come together in here to pray, to worship, to serve, to give, the Holy Spirit flows down and nurtures us, and waters us, and replenishes us equips us to be who he has called us to be. And then the last part of Psalm 133. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even 
life forevermore. The prosperity of unity. Notice what it says concerning God's people. Now we're talking about how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. He gave us two beautiful pictures of what that unity looks like. The oil and the dew of Hermon. And now he says this is the prosperity of unity. There the Lord commands the blessing. Now, we can ask for blessing, and we do, don't we? We can ask for blessings. We can long for blessings. But only God can command a blessing. Now, I ask for it, and I can long for it. But when God commands a blessing, it is as good as done. When God speaks a blessing on a people, it can't be unblessed. When Balaam, when they tried to hire Balaam to bring a curse against Israel, Balaam went and heard from God, and this is what God told Balaam. What I have blessed, you can't curse. What I have cursed, you can't bless. When God commands a blessing, it is as good as done. The God who spoke light into darkness can speak a blessing to a person, to a church, to a body of people. The God who, who, who spoke life into death, when he speaks and commands a blessing to come, it will come. He can bless. And so let me tell you, let me, let me just, I'm, I'm closing right here. Listen, we have seen souls saved. That ain't me doing that. That ain't you doing that. That is the blessing of God doing that. Listen, if God does not empower my, the words that I, that I speak, I'm just like Ezekiel. When Ezekiel was called to prophesy to the bones, he prophesied to the bones, and the Bible said those bones came together, uh, bone to bone. And, 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 and sinew was laid upon them, and flesh was laid upon them. But the Bible says there was no life. And you know what he told Ezekiel to do next? He said, prophesy to the wind, speak to the wind. Ruach, which is the same word as translated spirit in other places. In other words, he said, Ezekiel, you've done all you can do. You've proclaimed the word to the bones, and there's a form of life, but there's no real life. But you prophesy to the wind. And the Bible said that the wind of God blew upon those bones, and they came alive and began came an exceeding great army can I tell you that all I can do is preach the word and pray for the Holy Spirit to birth that word in your heart so that you might be born again by the word of life when souls have been saved here it is because the blessing of God has been commanded upon this church I looked at a Cindy was going through pictures um, getting ready for a remodeling and she pulled out a bunch of old pictures of baptisms. One of them, we're standing in Richard and Brenda Jury's pool. And there's a whole row of young boys lined up along the side. John Stephen. Several others. But the one that I had in my hand at that present moment was Brandon Henderson. who just went home. And I thought to myself, my Lord, thank you for the season that you allowed us to minister to that family and in, speak into Brandon's life. I'm telling you, every 
soul that has ever been saved in the Zion Hill Church is because God commanded a blessing. Your kid has come to Christ under the ministry of this church or because you've raised them in this church, that's because God commanded a blessing and the, and the spirit of unity that he found here. Churches that have a lot of, that have a lot of strife and contention, and you know, I believe this, and I may be completely wrong, and the Lord will correct me when I get there. A church full of strife and contention is not going to see a lot of folks come to Christ, not legitimately. Because you've, if you've got an unhealthy body and you add a new soul to an unhealthy body, you know what you'll do? You've infected, and you, you have passed along an infection. The Lord wants to add to a healthy body. We have seen folks saved because of the unity of the Spirit that's here. And God commanded, commanded the blessing there. We've seen lives change because God commanded the blessing there. We've made an impact. I know it's hard to believe. And, and, and we, we ain't the only one. And I don't, I don't ever want anybody to think that I think that this is the only church that's doing right. Because we ain't. But we are one of them. That God is commanding a blessing in. Do you realize? I'm, I'm, I'm just reminding you some things. Zion Hill has supported. We have never, since I've been here in 26 years, decreased our giving in anything that we've given to. Um, as far as the work of the kingdom, it has increased incrementally every year. Right now, we're giving away outside of this church to other ministries, outside ministries, ministries that don't, that don't benefit us um, directly, that, don't, that, that we may not ever see the fruit of. We're giving away almost 20% of our total budget to outside missions and ministries. I don't see that doing anything but increasing. All these buildings have been paid for. Um, the first six months of this year, we, the renovation that we did last year in the middle of the pandemic, Almost $300,000. The first six months of this year, we have paid almost $150,000 of that off. And we hadn't decreased giving anywhere. And our benevolent people have been working hard to provide the needs of folks in this community that you don't even know about. In fact, I don't even know about it until I get in a card in the mail thanking the church for the help. We ain't letting our left hand know what the right hand's doing, and that's the way God intended it. We ain't tooting our horn in the community um, about what we're doing for folks. There's an orphanage in Nepal that the Zion Hill Church is almost single-handedly underwriting. There are children's homes in Mexico, children's homes in Alabama, children's homes in Virginia um, that the Zion Hill Church is major supporters of. Um, there's a crisis pregnancy center in Waycross um, that Zion Hill has played a huge role already in funding the monthly support needed um, for the paid staff to be there to, 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 to counsel women, young girls that are in crisis pregnancy situations. There are two counseling ministries, one in Blackshear and one in Moultrie, Georgia, that people are getting the needs that they have met. And listen, counseling needs have increased exponentially in the last two years. And these, these counseling ministries are full. Um, they're doing all they can to help everybody they can. And Zion Hill's underwriting a lot of that. We got missionaries in the field all over the world that are recipients of the support of the Zion Hill Church. 
You're making a difference in India. You're making a difference in Japan. You're making a difference in unreached people groups in the world, in the southern tip of Spain, in Mongolia. The, 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 the gifts that you give on Sunday morning, when you lay that check in the plate, you know what, what's in your mind? This is going to help Zion Hill Church. No, it ain't. It's going to help the kingdom of God wherever it is and wherever it, wherever it goes. Yeah, you're sowing into this ministry, but it's more than that. You're sowing into the kingdom. Right now, and this, this is crazy to me, in the midst of a pandemic how this has happened, we're, all, we're not even three-fourths of the way through this year, and we're $70,000 over where we projected to be in our budget. That's big stuff. Why? Because God has commanded a blessing. I believe he'll continue to do that. I told Timmy, I was talking to Timmy the other day, I said, man, I don't understand. Timmy and Garrett, I said, I don't understand it. It don't even make sense to me how we're, how we're doing as well as we are right now with everything that's gone on the last two years. And both of them said the same thing. You do know why. Because God's been faithful. Because we've tried to take what he's given to us and be faithful with it. And God has commanded a blessing here. I can't remember the last time we had a quarterly conference where we had anybody vote against anything. It's been unity. It's been, let's do this. It's been, let's make sure that what we do brings glory to God. And that's where God commands the blessing. And he was very specific about that blessing. He said, life evermore. And this is what I believe. I believe that the unity of a church is a foretaste and a deposit of heaven inside of us it's given us a glimpse of what it looks like i love the fact that when john saw he looked into heaven and saw that multitude of people he said they were from every nation every tongue every tribe every kindred they had palm branches in their hands and they were waving them before the lord giving the angel said you know who these are john said i don't but you do he said these are they that have been redeemed from the earth these are those that have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. These are those who are saved because of the testimony that they have of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they love not their lives until the death. The unity that we have on earth that revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ is a foretaste, a deposit of heaven inside of us. Now, what that looks like to me is what Jesus said in John 10, 10. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I've come that they might have life. Abundant, life, eternal. And according to Romans chapter 14, what that means is peace, joy, and righteousness. That's the blessing that the Lord has commanded. Here. And other places, but here. I'm thankful for the unity, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I'm going to ask our musicians to come, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning. Lord, I'm grateful to pastor a church that walks together in unity. I know I have friends, God, that have been in places where it has been 
strife and contention and conflict. Literally, the churches have, have earned a reputation of being churches that crucify pastors. Where there have been people vying for control, feuding and fighting among themselves. And Lord, I can honestly say in all sincerity that when I came to Zion Hill, I found a people that loved each other and who were laboring together to further your kingdom. And they made some incredible decisions even before I got here about their future and about what they wanted. And all of it revolved around seeing the kingdom grow and expand. I'm grateful that you placed me here in a place that's so full of life, abundant life, so full of peace and joy and righteousness. And I'm grateful, Lord, that you have commanded the blessing over and over and over again. I'm thankful for the preciousness of the unity that we have. I'm thankful, Lord, for the pleasantry, the peace, God, that I feel when we gather in this place together. And I, I just pray that, that, Father, you'd help us. Ephesians tells us that we might endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. I know that there'll always be threats that come against it. The devil is a master deceiver and divider. But may we labor together for your glory and honor to be one even as you, Jesus, are one in the Father, that we might be one in you. Keep us moving forward. God, there's a lot of work to do and time is short. Keep us laboring together for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need to come to the altar this morning, whatever the Lord has spoken to your heart, please do.